Thank you, Sarah, very much indeed. Well, for the benefit of the newcomers, please do keep your Bible open at Psalm 130 and also have the white bulletin open because on the right-hand side of the inside of the bulletin there's an outline that tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, your word rises far above all the words of the world. Quieten within us every voice but your own. Speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may receive grace to show the love of Christ in lives devoted to his service. Amen. Jonathan Aitken was uh, a former cabinet minister in the British government and uh, in 1999 he was convicted of uh, perjury and sent to a maximum security prison. While he was there, uh, Jonathan Aitken was converted to Christ and uh, in his biography, which uh, if you have a chance to read it I recommend, he tells how these psalms came to mean a very great deal to him and especially Psalm 130, the psalm that we're looking at together this morning. Uh, Two weeks before he was due to be released, Jonathan Aitken was asked to preach on this particular psalm in the prison chapel. And uh, a crowd of the most unlikely people turned up to listen, I think probably because he was such a well-known figure. Uh, One of them was someone by the name, or the nickname, The Big Face. Uh, The Big Face was a notorious gangland murderer and one of the most feared inmates in the prison. Uh, Everyone was extremely nervous when the the Big Face pitched up in chapel. He hadn't been before. But uh, he listened attentively as Aitken spoke on Psalm 130. Uh, And in his talk, Aitken said it wasn't only his favourite psalm, but it was also the favourite psalm of Augustine, Luther and Calvin. Uh, on receiving this information, the, uh, the big face nodded intelligently, uh, as if he knew who these people were. Uh, as the talk went on, the big face was really moved and tears began to stream down his cheeks. Uh, afterwards, he came up to Jonathan Aitken and he said, that psalm was really beautiful. It's got my heart and I want to ask you a big favour. Please would you come over to my cell on A-Wing tomorrow night because um, I've got a couple of friends there who I think need to hear this talk. Um, Clearly at that point Jonathan Aitken must have been looking rather nervous. Uh, So the, the big face said to him, well to make yourself feel just a bit more comfortable, why don't you bring a couple of your friends along with you? Uh, how about bringing along those geezers that you spoke about in your talk? Uh, Augustus uh, and, and the other guys that you mentioned. Uh, well, Jonathan Aitken says that actually he was unable to bring Luther, Calvin and Augustine with him. Nevertheless, the evening was a tremendous success. Now that isn't surprising because Psalm 130 is a truly magnificent psalm. No less than 44 of the world's greatest composers have set it to music, including Bach, 
Handel, Mozart, Liszt and Mendelssohn. The uh, Puritan writer, John Owen, was so moved by Psalm 130 that he wrote a commentary of over 300 pages on it. Now, that degree of interest, I think, in a psalm of just eight verses is telling us there's something very special going on, and of course there is. Because Psalm 130 contains one of the most penetrating statements of the Gospel in the entire Old Testament. In a nutshell, Psalm 130 is all about salvation by grace. And I can't think of a more appropriate time for us to be studying it than the beginning of Easter week. But in order for us to see just how special it is, we first need to do some basic orientation. The title tells us that it's one of a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Now these Songs of Ascent uh, were written for pilgrims to sing as they travelled up to Jerusalem for each of the three festivals in the Jewish calendar. And the purpose of these songs was to help pilgrims deal with all the pressures of life in a fallen world. And one of the remarkable features of this collection is as you work your way through it, you find that the spotlight in these psalms gradually moves away from all of the external pressures, the pressures out there, and it begins to shine its light on what's actually going on inside our hearts. Now that I think is tremendously important because you see you and I tend to look at the circumstances of life and we say to ourselves, well, if only I were in different circumstances I would be a far better Christian. Have you said that this week? You see, we say, don't we, if I didn't have to be with these people, uh, if I had a better job, uh, if my family didn't have these problems, if I had just a little bit more money, if, 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 then. But these psalms, you see, are saying that all the difficulties and pressures are an unavoidable part of life in a fallen world. And if you're a real Christian, the question is this, how are you dealing with the pressures? Where is your trust? Are you letting God be God in your life or is your trust actually somewhere else? So it's hardly surprising, is it, that the most important word in the psalm is the word LORD in capital letters. And you'll notice, if you look carefully, that it appears in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, and then twice in verse 7. Uh, you'll also notice the word Lord in small letters, but that's actually a different word in the Hebrew, which means something like master. So yes, the psalmist is singing as a servant to his master, but we can think of this word Lord in capital letters almost as the Christian name of God. It is his personal name. So this is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God of the covenant. And a covenant is a promise. Now, I say this, you see, because Psalm 130 is not the kind of random prayer 
that somebody might pray in the hope that someone upstairs might be listening. No, it's a prayer to the God of the Bible who has promised that if we trust in Christ as Lord, he will always be our God and we will always be his people. And that is the basis upon which Christians pray this psalm. You'll notice the psalm divides into four couplets of two verses each. And every couplet is saying something important about the Lord and something important about us. So come with me as we begin to verses 1 and 2, which I've called Our Despair and His Ears. Verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now when you and I hear that somebody is in the depths of despair, we tend to think, don't we, that it must be because of some external factor, such as uh, money worries, family problems, or ill health. But that isn't the case in this psalm. Uh, The problem here is something that most people today would never imagine for one moment could ever be a cause for despair, because it is sin. And there can be no doubt that sin is the real problem, because he can't stop talking about it. Notice in verse 3, he talks about a record of sins. In verse 4, he talks about (coughs) forgiveness. And in verses 7 and 8, he talks about redemption. So John Owen in his commentary says this, he cries out under the weight and the waves of his sins. Desiring to be delivered out of the depths from which he cried, he deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness. Now, friends, the problem that you and I have in appreciating a psalm like this is that most people we know don't take sin seriously. And that's because uh, our generation lives with practically no real awareness of God. And, of course, when God is forgotten, well, sin disappears. If you think about that, it's logical, isn't it? Because, you see, in the Bible, sin is defined purely in relation to God. So, a good working definition of sin is man asserting his independence from God. And so, you see, when a culture is no longer aware of sin, and ours is not, that is a sign it's turned its back on God. That is not the case in Psalm 130. And that's one of the reasons why we need to bring this psalm back into our own lives and back into the life of the church. You see, in this uh, series of songs, the, the psalmist began back in Psalm 120, which starts the collection, by talking about all of the enemies out there, uh, the liars, the mockers, Uh, the people who plot against God and scheme against the people of God. But the psalmist himself, you see, is on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And on his journey, he knows that when he gets there, he's going to go into the temple where he's going to be standing in the presence of God. 
And the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the more he asks himself whether he's really ready to do that. And he begins to examine his own heart. And I think that speaks to each one of us, doesn't it? As I get closer to the end of my pilgrimage, what if I find that in my own heart I'm an enemy of God? What if I, who call myself a pilgrim, find myself in the depths of despair because when I look at my heart, I see that I'm a sinner too, that I'm in opposition to God and that frequently I find I'm questioning him and acting in rebellion against him. You see, it's one thing, isn't it, to put my faith in the Lord who protects me and provides for me against my enemies, but what if I make myself the enemy because of my sin? What then? I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, to know that God is absolutely righteous and he will judge his enemies, but what does that mean for me if I'm the enemy? Well, that is the situation in Psalm 130. The psalm begins with this kind of overwhelming sense of separation from God. Uh, Because in the Bible, that phrase, the depths, is uh, shorthand for the depths of the sea. And it's often used in the psalms as an image of terror and of sheer helplessness. And this psalm is saying that when we Christians see the sin in our own hearts, we will sometimes feel ourselves to be in the depths. Pilgrims can be there. Real Christians will sometimes find themselves in verse 1. But the characteristic of the pilgrim is that when you are in the depths, and when you are conscious of an overwhelming sense of inadequacy and failure before God, instead of running away from him, you turn towards him. And we pray verse 2, don't we? O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Now that, of course, is what Jesus taught in the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, isn't it? Jesus showed us in uh, that parable that what God regarded as acceptable worship was when the tax collector went up into the temple but wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And rather he, he beat his chest and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, doesn't he, in that parable, that he was the one who went home justified. But you see, the problem is, in our hearts, you and I actually find that really rather hard to accept. Because I think most of us tend to line up with the Pharisee, don't we? Uh, We think that when we come to God as Christian people who've maybe been on pilgrimage for 20 or 30 years, that we ought to be able to say to God, you know, Lord, look at the marvellous things I've done for you. Uh, Look at all the sacrifices I've made. I have a daily quiet time. Uh, I go to church. Uh, I tithe my income. Lord, just look at all the marvellous things I've done that show just how dedicated I am to you. 
And you see, you and I can very easily slip into that way of thinking without even realising we're doing it. And we find it very hard, I think, to imagine that the real place of strength in the Christian life is crying to God out of the depths and saying, Lord, can it really be that you would go on bothering with someone like me? But you see, that's the real pilgrim. That's the real Christian. His cry for mercy comes out of the depths. And in this psalm, it's very striking, isn't it, that God opens his ears to hear it. And that brings us to the second couplet, which is actually the turning point in the psalm, which I've called Our Sins and His Forgiveness, verses 3 and 4. Now, these two verses made such a deep impression on Thomas Cranmer that he put them in the prayer book. Because verse 3 puts its finger on the biggest problem facing every man, woman and child on the planet, which is this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Now, what that verse is saying is that if the Lord should keep a record of all our sins in some tremendous ledger and keep that ledger under lock and key and uh, if every time I was greedy or covetous he took out his ledger and wrote that in in indelible ink and if every time I prefer my comfort to serving other people he took out his ledger and he recorded it in that ledger to bring out in evidence against me And if every time I had an ugly thought or spoke an unkind word or treated someone badly, if God carefully and accurately recorded all those things in his ledger in order to produce them as evidence against me on the last day, oh Lord, who could stand? The answer, of course, is no one. And you and I need to understand that. Perhaps especially, can I say this? Open your ears to hear this. Perhaps especially when we're suffering. Because you see, when we're suffering, our culture encourages us into a victim mentality where we think, you know, this is not my fault. What on earth have I done to deserve this? And before we know it, self-righteousness has crept in by the back door. Rather, you and I have got to get it absolutely crystal clear in our minds that if God recorded all of our sins in his ledger and produced it in evidence against us and then he sent me to the lonely terrors of hell for all eternity, I would have to agree that what God had done was just and right and good. Now, my friends, that is the context in which you and I now need to move on and read verse 4 and rejoice. Because it begins with one of the great Bible words, doesn't it? What is that word? Somebody tell me. Verse 4. But, you see, we are all guilty 
before the Lord, every single person in this room this morning, but, verse 4, with you, there is forgiveness. You see, you might not find forgiveness from other people. If you wronged your spouse, he or she might not actually forgive you. Your children might not forgive you. Your colleagues at work might not forgive you. You might not actually even forgive yourself. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew there says, with you, there is the forgiveness. And it's saying that with the Lord, there is the forgiveness you need. The forgiveness that matches the sin. The forgiveness that kind of eclipses the magnitude of our failure. And you see, friends, the point is that our God is a forgiving God. Do you remember that time in the Old Testament when Moses asked to see God? Um, Israel had just sinned against the Lord in the most appalling way by worshipping the golden calf. And Moses wanted reassurance from God that uh, in spite of their disobedience, God wouldn't abandon them. And God responds to Moses' request by proclaiming his name and his character in these words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. What a marvellous word for Moses to hear. What a wonderful word for anybody to hear, for that matter. In fact, it's such important good news that I want to pause on it for just a moment and say four important things about God's forgiveness that we find in Psalm 130. I think if we get this clear in our minds, we'll see how amazing God's forgiveness really is. Number one, God's forgiveness is inclusive. Notice in verse 4, verse 4 does not say... You know, there's forgiveness for minor sins. But certain other sins are not included. Perhaps the one you're really rather worried about this morning. No, there's no limit. With the Lord, there is perfect forgiveness for any sin by anybody. Number two. God's forgiveness is for now. Uh, the, the translators actually have used the verb is so that verse 4 reads in the present tense with you there is forgiveness but in the original language actually it's even stronger than that because in the Hebrew there's no verb at all so it simply reads with you the forgiveness So you see, you don't need to hope that somehow you might receive forgiveness on the last day. Uh, You're not really too sure about it and you're going to spend the rest of your life worrying whether you're going to get it. No, there is forgiveness now, at this very moment. And it is 
for you, whoever you are, and whatever you've done. Number three, God's forgiveness is for those who want it. Now the point is, it is available. But you've got to ask God for it and you've got to trust him to give it to you. You see, the writer of this psalm is confessing his his sin, isn't he? He's not covering it up, which would actually be a way of pretending that he doesn't really need forgiveness. No, in verse 2, he is asking God for mercy. He's acknowledging his need. And you see, by saying, with you there is forgiveness, he's exercising his faith, isn't he? Now, when you and I say uh, the Apostles' Creed, when we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, you have said, if you were with us, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I sincerely hope you do. But the important question is, have you actually asked God for it? You see, believing in the forgiveness of sins isn't actually going to do you any good at all unless you ask God to forgive your sins. And number four, God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Now this is where many people get it wrong. Many people think that if God's forgiveness can be had simply for the asking, it doesn't really matter how I live. So, notice the end of verse 4, which is a surprise, I think. It says, therefore, you are feared. Now, that's rather surprising. Because I think we might expect the psalmist to say, therefore you are loved. Or therefore you are to be thanked, or praised, or something like that. But you see, in the Bible, fear is an attitude of reverence towards Almighty God. And can I say this? It is the automatic and inescapable response of the person who realises they have been loved and saved by God in spite of their sin. So one writer, I think, gets the sense of verse 4 really rather well when he translates it like this. He says, There is forgiveness with you, that you may be loved and worshipped and served. That's how he understands that word feared. And I think that captures it rather beautifully. Because the, the effects of forgiveness, if you've experienced it, are love for God proved in obedience, worship in a life committed to learning about God and his ways, and service that promotes the cause of Christ and his church. You see, that is the lifestyle that is produced by an experience of God's forgiveness. Yes, God's forgiveness is the most wonderful thing. But can I also say that it's not actually an end in itself. It is a means to a greater end... And so in verses 5 and 6 we have our waiting and his word. Verse 5 I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word I put my hope. 
Now, friends, you and I need to hear that this morning, don't we? Who here is good at waiting? Nobody. You see, we live in a world, don't we, of instant solutions. Uh, We expect to connect to the internet uh, internet instantly. Uh, When we get sick, we expect instant overnight remedies. Uh, When we're going through relationship difficulties, we expect the kind of counselling that's going to produce an instant solution. And you see, we bring that expectation of instant results into our Christian lives. So, for example, um, every month uh, we pick up the Open Doors newsletter, don't we? And we respond to their invitation to pray for our brothers and sisters experiencing persecution. And so we do. Uh, We pray faithfully, I hope. And next month, when we receive the next prayer update... Uh, We want to read, don't we, that things are better. More often than not, they're not better. They're actually worse. And yet we're asked to go on praying and waiting for the Lord to actually do something. Now, am I the only person who struggles with that? And when it comes to the sin in our own lives, we often find it the most difficult of all. We long to be free of it, but we find it seriously depressing that that same sin keeps rearing its ugly head, causing pain and difficulty to the people that we love. And I think especially for the new Christian, it can be rather unsettling. Because the new Christian will often find himself or herself saying, you know, I don't actually know what's happened to me since I became a Christian. I seem to be rather worse than I was before. I wonder what's gone wrong. Well, can I say to you, nothing's gone wrong. Um, That experience is quite normal. It's actually a sign that your Christian life is heading in precisely the right direction. Because more often than not what's happening is that God is showing you just how much sin that is down in the cellar that needs to be brought out and dealt with in the course of your Christian life. And he's gently peeling the layers away one by one. If he did it all at once, well, you'd be a pile of incinerated ash, wouldn't you? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, he shows us just how deeply ingrained sin is within every one of us. It does not just go away overnight. We are sinners by nature. And so at times, at times, we will find ourselves crying out of the depths for mercy. But all the time, you see, God is working patiently within us, trusting Uh, getting us to trust him so that we come back to him again and again asking for forgiveness. And rather than getting so discouraged by our sin that we actually think that we might give up on this Christian thing altogether, our job is to wait for the Lord. Now what does that actually mean? Fix your eyes on verse 5. Verse 5 says that waiting on the Lord means putting our hope 
in his word. I wait for the Lord, what does that mean? And in his word, I put my hope. Now in the immediate context, uh, the idea is that God has promised to forgive those people who come to him asking for mercy. And here, the psalmist has already experienced that. You know, he knows that God has kept his promise of forgiveness in his own life. Why does he know that? Because he fears God in a way that he didn't before. We've already seen that. And now he's got an eager expectation that God is going to keep all of his other marvellous promises as well. And so the pilgrim might pray something like this. Lord, uh, because you've forgiven me, I know that you're going to be absolutely faithful to all your other promises as well. Your promise to be with me always. Your promise to watch over me and keep me from all eternal harm. Your promise to provide everything that I need in order to live for you. And especially your promise to break the power of sin in my life. So I am waiting for you, Lord. And then he gives us that rather marvellous illustration in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Now you've got to use your imagination here. Because in those days, uh, night patrol on the city walls was a pretty dangerous job. Uh, you never knew when the enemy might suddenly appear out of the darkness with a devastating attack on the city. And at times, those nights could seem very long indeed. But the one thing that every watchman knew for a certainty was that the morning would eventually come. He had no doubt about that. And so here you see what the psalmist is saying is even more than those watchmen waiting for the morning I have certainty that the Lord will fulfil his word in my life. That's why I'm a pilgrim. That's why I keep pressing on. It's because I know that the Lord is faithful. So I'm waiting for him. And so, having found forgiveness and having found a renewed trust in God's word, the psalmist turns to his fellow pilgrims, much as we might turn to one another in this church this morning. And in that last couplet, he testifies to our hope and his love. Verses 7 and 8. Just look at verse 7. I think it's really rather beautiful. O Israel, O people of God, O Christian, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Now that is an absolutely marvellous promise for you and I to take into our lives this week, isn't it? 
You know, as we go out into the week to serve God and find by Monday lunchtime we've fallen over because of our sinfulness and we've failed the Lord and we've let him down again, we know that we can cry out to him from the, from the depths and claim his forgiveness again, knowing that with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. So you see, what he's saying is that our hope as Christian people is not in ourselves. It's in the Lord and in his unchanging character. And at the centre of that unchanging character is his unfailing love. And it means we've got absolute confidence that when we turn to God in repentance, he's going to remove every single barrier that sin has erected between us and the Lord. And ultimately, verse 8, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. What a verse. It's the message of Easter, isn't it? Do you see how that points to the, the personal involvement of the Lord with us? Because he's not simply dispensing forgiveness from some remote corner of the universe. No, he comes to us personally to forgive us. He himself redeems us. And of course, this week on Good Friday, we remember that Jesus did just that when he went to the cross for our sins. And when we cry to him for mercy, he speaks his word of pardon to us. And he lifts us out of the depths. And he sets our feet on a rock. So friends, put your hope in the Lord. He's the only one to hope in. And if your hope is in him, he's never going to let you go. And he's never going to let you down. He's never going to love you more than he does at this moment. And he's never going to love you less. He is your promise-keeping, covenant-fulfilling Lord. And he's calling on us through this psalm to trust him in everything. Because with him is forgiveness, unfailing love, and full redemption. And that is the message we celebrate this week. I would like to ask you to stand and we will pray Psalm 130 together as it appears on the screen. Together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, 
and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.